Hi, well, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I feel so encouraged by you already. I've been here since 10 o'clock in the prayer meeting. Um, just wow. Um, it's so amazing to feel hear people who've got a real heart for London and meet people who love the city that you passionately love as well and coming and sacrificing so much to be here, to work together, to see people know and encounter this amazing God, Jesus, who we love. I'm so, I feel so connected to you almost emotionally to that as well. There should be no competition in the kingdom. I absolutely believe that in seeking to work together in partnership. So I'm thankful to be here. Um, just to say a little bit more about, about me. Um, people in my church will know this. They'll tell you, Howard, he's this introverted, uh, melancholic guy. He's, he's dyslexic. Um, he arrived at Westminster Chapel. He sat in the back row. Nobody noticed him. And now, by some almost miracle of God and his sense of humor, he's leading the church. Um, and I'm still kind of in that place where I'm sort of like, wow, is this really happening? Should I be doing this? This guy, I'm stood in this pulpit wearing kind of ripped jeans in a shirt and I'm just this I feel very uh, unready for that yet at the same time call of God to this this role so that's just showing a little bit about me um, and I, I feel called to speak to you about spiritual walking supernatural walking walking on the water this morning and that's really a metaphor for the Christian life um, and you'll find that Mark chapter 6 verse 45 we'll get to it in a little bit but if you've got a Bible you're going to need it to be open just in front of you um, but I want to talk about what really is the Christian life about. What is it meant to be like? How should it be lived? Because there's so much confusion about what real Christianity is. I think today, especially in London and the culture that we live in, um, I think a lot of people sometimes think that the Christian faith is a ticket to a really easy life. Really comfortable, luxurious kind of lifestyle. I spent some time living in East Africa, and I would hear some church leaders, thankfully not all by any stretch of the imagination, but some you'd hear them talking about if you just give X amount in the offering, then God will heal you of AIDS. Truce. What what was happening? Or God will heal you of this condition. Or if you give if you give this amount of, of money to the to us as a church, to, to me as your pastor, in effect, then you know you will get that visa that you really want or you need. It's just a horrible kind of wrong expression of the Christian faith but basically saying if you give more of your time more of your talents to God then God will give them give something more to you he'll give you more money he'll give you that luxury car or that luxury lifestyle that you want he'll just give you sort of all of that it'll be such an easy life like that that really is not true Christianity as I'm sure you, you all know there's an element of truth and that God is a God who wants to bless, but it's not true. And if, if we think that way, we get caught into thinking that way, we're going to be really, really disappointed. We're we'll really lost. And you might be thinking, oh, that's prosperity, gospel, how? We don't do that here. I'm not thinking that you do. Um, but we live in a culture that worships the God of comfort, don't we? In your pocket, your, your mobile phone, within our fingertips, uh, you, you can watch like a, a movie, <laughs> Netflix. I, people walk into me doing that all the time in London. It's very annoying. Um, but they can do that. You can order Uber Eats. You've got everything that you want. Luxuries unheard of generations ago. And I think we kind of can end up worshipping this God of comfort. You know, we live in an age of entitlement. Where we think, I'm genuinely entitled to have an easy, comfortable life of, of good health and stress-free. I, I, I deserve that, don't I? 
I think that's often how, how people think, and it comes all over the place. Like my kids, one of their favorite TV shows um, is from CBeebies is Topsy and Tim. Some of the parents in the room will know this. Um, they're far too perfect, really. Amen, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sure our kids will like that. Um, but the theme tune is, we can be anything we want to be. Yeah, you can see it <laughs> If we close our eyes and we dream. Well, it's nice, isn't it? It's positive, but it's not true. It's not, it's not true. It's the kind of the culture, this culture of entitlement that we have. And I think it kind of like invades a little bit like um, kind of a computer code. This kind of culture that's around there into the church, into the minds that we have, that drips through down into the hearts like a virus that can kind of spread and kind of mingle around. Now, I like to give the illustration of... Um, um, songs that get stuck in your head. And we know that there are certain songs that go around in your head and once they're in your head you can't think of anything productively whatsoever um, or everything is lost as this song goes around your head. For me it was the classic kind of old TV commercial, uh, BNBN. Anybody remember that? The Biscuit commercial, a few people. Uh, I'm gonna do something very annoying now. Um, <laughs> BNBN. Da, 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 da. That's it, game over, I need to go leave. Um, another one for me, I, I, in my summer, whilst I was at university, I would come back home, I would try and earn money, I'd work a summer job, and uh, I'd be a, a driver's mate or a porter if you're posh, and uh, you basically sit in a truck and get paid for most of the day, and then you, you unload and then you reload, and it was a fantastic job, but the guy that I was often kind of partnered with was this kind of very kind of, rough kind of driver, that's just the polite way to describe him. Um, and he really liked the song Mambo Number no. 5 when it came on the radio. I was a new Christian at this time and he would just sing this over and over again. It's like a little bit of Monica in my life, a little bit of readers, what I need. And then people were singing this all over the place and it's like get into my head, it's like, ah, I can't get this out of my head. God, this is so ungodly, this song is awful. It's so degrading of women, yet it's there going round and round and round and it's sort of affecting me in some strange way. And we get sucked into this culture, that's what I'm saying, of entitlement. And I find myself, I succumb to it so often. I often think I would be horrified, maybe you would be too, if we were to face some of the challenges or asked to make some of the sacrifices our parents or our grandparents made. My mum would have to go to the toilet in a little small shed in her back garden uh, with no light. <laughs> in the cold, in, in the rain. They didn't have central heating, they have to make a fire. Be like, oh, no way, I, I can't live with that. I'm just gonna switch the central heating up, oh nice. Some people underfloor heating, I mean, it's crazy. How much more horrified would we be if we endured what the early church endured? True, original Christianity, uncontaminated by 21st century. One of my favorite historians is a guy called uh, as a Roman historian, he's called Cornelius Tacitus. Um, he really didn't like Christians. Um, and he writes something called the, uh, uh, about Imperial Rome in around about 115 AD. He's about, um, I think, 58 at the time that he's writing. Uh, and he's looking back to a time when he was a little boy. It's AD 64. And a man called Nero was emperor of Rome at the time. It's a very accepted historian, by the way. Very credible historian. And he describes what the Christians were, were enduring. Vast numbers, he says, are now in Rome. They've come from just being a handful of small people out in this backwater Galilee. 1,500 miles 
before planes, trains and automobiles, phenomenal in itself. Now there are, there are a vast number in the capital city, in, in Rome, and what's happening to them? He's saying that their bodies are being thrown alive to dogs to be ripped apart. Or they're being tied to pieces of, of wood um, at, at night and they're, they're being burned alive. Human torches. It's really happened. It's the early church. It's the true expression of the Christian faith. I take from that an amazing encouragement that they genuinely believed Jesus was God. They were absolutely certain. The first witnesses to Jesus and those who met those first witnesses were absolutely certain Jesus came back from the dead. That he defeated death. They could die. You can do anything you like with my body. I don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm going to rise again. I'm going to live forever. It doesn't matter. They believed that. But the point that I want to make is the Christian life isn't always easy. It was never meant to be easy. Now, we can make it pretty hard by our own sinful choices in the way that we live. That's definitely one way. But I also think that God, though he doesn't stand behind evil and suffering, he permits it for purpose, to teach us to grow. So I'm going to make six points to you from this passage, Mark chapter 6. The first of those is that God gives difficult tasks to give us a framework that explains that when Jesus says each day we'll have enough trouble of, it, uh, of its own, when trouble comes to us, we'll be ready, you'll be prepared for it. The first point is God gives difficult tasks. But let me first read to you the whole passage from Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. This is the feeding of the 5,000 just before their hearts were hardened. God gives difficult tasks. Verse 45 here. He sends the disciples out after a long and exhausting day to row in a boat, significant journey in conditions that will blow up into a storm. God gives difficult tasks. <laughs> He's not the author of evil, no way, but he can, he can work through challenges and trials and difficulties in our life. And sometimes when the Christian life gets difficult, don't just assume this isn't God. That can't be God. It mustn't be his will for me. That's not his will for my life. My life's to be easy. No, no, no. Sometimes that, that can be God. The Christian life can be really difficult at times. Leading a church plant, building a church in London can be really, really difficult and hard. You can feel like you're buffeted by the wind and the waves are kind of coming at you all the time. There's the storms of grief, there's the storms of sickness, there's the storms of all kinds of forms of suffering and trial. And you're there straining at the oar, 
straining so hard in the role that God has called you to, maybe it's a mum or a dad, and you'll find a season that's really hard with, the, with your kids. You've got a horrible boss that you're working for, and you're straining, straining at the oars in those, those moments. It can be really hard and sometimes wonder, what is God doing in this? Why is this happening to me? Well, I think it helps to step back and say, maybe God is in this. Maybe God is trying to teach me something through this situation. And just as, just as I start to dignify the trial, we would call it, I might grow. He might speak to me. Sometimes these moments, they happen for me, they're like a kind of spiritual growth hormone injection moment. <laughs> and I'm like in the slough of despondence, and suddenly like, oh, that's, that's what's going on. Wow, boom, suddenly there's a revelation of God. It happened to me um, in February last year. I, I woke up one morning and my face was completely swollen. Uh, and it was itchy, and it was red, it was inflamed, it was so gross, I'm sorry if you don't like these things, but there was pus coming out of the side of my nose, just oozing out, my, my left eye was so swollen and crusty, it was like nearly shut, I had no idea what was really going on, uh, I presumed it was some kind of allergic reaction, I didn't know to what, it was the day of my daughter's fourth birthday party as well. So I had to get myself to the, kind of, to the hospital, a deeply humiliating experience with people looking at me like I was from some kind of horror film with all this makeup extras on my face. No, that's my real face. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not very nice to get to the, the, the hospital A&E and I'm, I'm waiting around there and everybody's kind of looking at me thinking, this guy, there's something wrong with this guy. And I eventually get some treatment. They give me steroids I kind of after hours of wait and I get an Uber to come and pick me up because my family's busy doing other things. And the taxi driver's first words to me, what happened to you? I was like, thanks, I feel great now. <laughs> so encouraging. He thought I'd had some kind of crazy fight, and it was like that for, for quite a few weeks before it eventually kind of calmed down. And in this, I'm like, God, I don't need this. I've already got enough on my plate, haven't I? Uh, why, is, why is this happening to me? And then I started to finally tune into his voice, and he's saying to me, Howard, I'm trying to teach you something. You care too much about what other people think. It's time you stop caring so much. Now here's the irony. I have been praying, I keep a little kind of prayer journal. I encourage you to do that. At the back of it, I have a whole lot of prayer lists. I'm a bit like a geek like this and I tick every time I pray for them. I believe in the power of persistent prayer and I leave a space for that prayer to be answered. They're all dated. And I have a prayer down there where I've been praying for some time. God, I want complete freedom from the fear of man. <laughs> uh, I just find it quite, quite interesting. This is often how, how God works. Like, if, if you haven't worked this out, I'm, I'm sorry, but you will. So people who, uh, I really want to learn how to trust God. Well, if you're trusting this, goodbye. <laughs> if you're trusting this, goodbye. So that all that's left is God. That's often the way that he teaches us, because we're so stubborn and obstinate. We need to learn to dignify the trial. God gives difficult tasks. What is he doing in your difficult assignment? But in the midst of that difficult task, here's the second point. You need to know that God sees you. That you're seen. You're not forgotten by God. I, I love this verse. I never saw this the first few times I read this passage. God sees you. Verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. <laughs> here's Jesus. This is God. 
He's had an unbelievably busy day. I think the disciples were tired. Shouldn't Jesus be pretty exhausted feeding the 5,000? Hey, he's been up now all night praying. It's the last watch of the night. That's like the last watch before dawn comes and the sun rises. Jesus has been awake praying. He's like, oh, I just want to go to sleep. These disciples, oh, they're so annoying. No, he sees them right into the boat that they're in. It's incredible. Our God is the God who sees. I don't know if you know this, but that's actually one of the names of God. One of the ways that he reveals himself in the Bible, the God who sees. It comes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 16. And it's a wonderful um, expression of God's name because there's a woman called Hagar who's basically a slave girl who's kind of, by, by culture it was common, though it wasn't right to kind of be pressured into conceiving a child as a surrogate for Abraham and Sarah. And now she's kind of in friction with the family that she's, she's been a part of Abraham and Sarah and now she's going out. It's too difficult to live with them and she's gone out on the run. There's, there's, there's nobody really, a slave girl, out on the run, pregnant, not knowing. And God comes to meet with her. He saw her, the nobody, the, the no one. He came to her and he, he saw her and he spoke tenderly to her and he encouraged her. Our God is the God who sees. I love this. In the, in the original Greek here, it gets massaged out of different translations. But he says he saw them in the middle of the lake. The middle of the lake is actually in the original text. Now, I'm a bit of a geek about these things. I went and I looked. How big is the lake, the Sea of Galilee? But by my recollections, Jesus saw them three to six miles away. And it's dark. <laughs> Probably pitch black. I think we have a clue here about just who Jesus is. This first century biography, he is God. And he sees you. He sees you right where you're at. Are you struggling in life? Are you struggling with the oars that you're pulling? the roles you carry, the responsibilities you have, it helps a lot to know that God sees you. Do you matter to God? Yes, you absolutely matter to him. You are precious. He sees you. He sees everyone in this room and he knows you better than, he knows yourself, than you know yourself. The third point is God acts. God isn't just some kind of big brother type of God. It's how some of the other belief systems in the world will portray God. He's only all-powerful. He's sort of trapped in his omnipotence power, cannot get in and invade the world in which we inhabit. And he's all-transcendent. So he can only kind of observe. He sees you, but he might take notes in his little book, but do nothing about it. That is not our God. Our God is transcendent. He is above, but he's imminent. He penetrates and comes into the world. We see this straight away here. Jesus is up a mountain. He comes from on high, significant, to come down low to meet the disciples where they're at. He is a God who acts. It would be heartless for him not to but how does he act look at verse 48 again right at the end he was about to pass by them huh what uh jesus do you, do you want to get in the boat <laughs> lend a hand pull some oars with us come on jesus come come and help us out do you want to just stop the storm for a moment jesus we're, we're struggling uh, no he's going to pass by them what? <laughs> doesn't make sense, does it? Unless you start to understand the Old Testament parallels that we're meant to use to interpret the New Testament. I often think of Star Wars. I'm a bit of a Star Wars geek, sorry. But you can't really understand those original three films until you know the backstory 
they're not so good, the prequels. But, but until you know the backstory about you know, Darth Vader and how did he come about, you don't really make sense. So we need to understand the Old Testament to make sense of the, the New Testament here and what is going on when, when he's saying passing by. Now, if, if, you, if you knew your Bible, if you were a Jewish scholar and anything like that, you would go straight and say, oh, I know this phrase. This phrase is an incredibly significant phrase. It comes from Moses' life. Exodus chapters 30, 33 and 34, the second book of the Bible. And here we have Moses saying to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see what you're like, your nature, the outshining of your awesomeness of character. This is Moses' hunger above everything else in life and in the world. He wants to see the glory of God. And so God answers this prayer. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock so that my glory will pass by. I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by, he says. And then into chapter 34, and then he passes by in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness. It's a wonderful expression of the, the glory and the, the beauty of God. Jesus, God knows that more than help, that you need a vision. That you need to see him. Walking on the water to get a sense of the majesty and the almighty power of God. That, that everything is under his control. He walks on top of, of the water. He's all powerful. He is almighty. He is amazing. And in seeing Jesus and seeing the glory, you don't just get help to get through, you actually find breakthrough. Actually find a new and renewed strength. That leads to the fourth point. God encourages. Jesus' words to the disciples are, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. God comes to encourage, to give, give strength. One of the biggest challenges, I think, to the Christian life is fear. Fear and doubt. The greatest hindrances, I think, to the church, fear and doubt. True everywhere, I, I think, personally. But what are you afraid of? What holds you back? What doubts do you wrestle with? For me, I have all sorts of fears. I told you about my fear of man already. I'm quite honest and allowed to be real and vulnerable. I have a fear of rejection. I have a fear of failure. Oh, what, what happens if I fail? I have a fear of poverty. If all goes wrong, I've lost a house. Oh, no, I, I have to change all these kinds of things that you, you worry about. You ha have fears. What, what are your fears? Jesus, God, I think, will come today and say to you, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, that the meat, if you like, in the bread of this statement, this three-part statement is really interesting. I have to always qualify that. I say the meat. I get in trouble for that at Westminster Chapel. There's a lot of vegans there uh, <laughs> who, come and, who come and tell me off. So I would say that the central ingredient in this statement is, <laughs> is it is I, um, which is a really bad translation. I'm sorry, I understand why they did that. But the, the better translation would be I am. Now, it, you get why they're, they're saying that, because it'd be really weird. Take courage, I am, do not be afraid. It's like, whoa, that, that's kind of like Yoda or something. I don't know, that just makes sense. 
Um, but it does make sense, again, if we understand our Old, term, Old Testament and what, what, what Jesus is really trying to say here. Now, the I am is in all three first century biographies about Jesus. In this passage, it's there. Uh, and significantly, it's in John's first century biography account about Jesus. Um, and John makes something really big of this I am statement. He has seven I am statements in his um, biography about Jesus' life. Seven perfect ones, you might say, based on the days of creation. It's a very significant statement, I am. Again, it's the name of God. Exodus chapter 3, this is how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. God says, I am who I am. It's a bit confusing that. What does that mean? He's saying, I am the self-existent one. There's nothing before me. I don't rely on anything else. Um, I am ultimate reality. I'm everything. <laughs> I simply exist. There's nothing and no one that I depend on for my existence. I don't need anything. I'm completely self-sufficient being on my own. I, I am who I am. I am. Jesus is saying, hey, do you know what? You've seen me feed 5,000 people. You've seen me raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me calm a storm. Now I'm saying I am. I am that same God <laughs> of the Old Testament. Awesome and mighty power. I am here and I walk amongst you. You're going to see him. Oh, wow. It's awesome. I think Daniel would say here, I've stolen this from him, great pastor that he is. God doesn't need fuel for fire. I did. <laughs> the bush where God proclaims that name isn't consumed. It's just another element, man, to see these things. These, God has authored scripture. Yes, he's written through men, carried along by the Holy Spirit, but we should expect the divine revelation to be so full and fruitful as we read these verses. And we need this courage. This courage comes from a relationship with God and seeing who he is. Courage comes from seeing then who we are. We see, ah, oh, he's like that and I'm his. I belong to him. Oh, wow, I'm safe and I'm confident and I've got courage now I didn't have before. Oh, look who I'm serving. He's in control of everything. He's the amazing God and he walks on water. Wow, this is incredible. Here's the fifth point. God invites God invites. We need to flip over now to Matthew's retelling of this same story. Matthew is the only one, chapter 14, and we'll jump in at verse 28 in a moment. Matthew's the only one who talks of Peter responding and getting out of the boat. God invites. Lord, if it's you, Peter says, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus simply says, come. <laughs> come. An invitation to do what Jesus is doing. Supernatural walking, supernatural life. The adventure with him of faith. Wow. Come, come, come. I'm inviting you, Trinity Church, come. Come, I know you're doing a pretty amazing job already, but come. Come. It reminds me of this story of the first time um, I went out and I did treasure hunting. Some of you will know what that is, some of you won't, but basically um, you, you gather with some friends. I was doing this with my wife, and we, we pray, we ask our God, show us some clues, names, places, 
clothing, things like that, about certain people that you want us to go out and bless today, to encourage and to pray for. Um, I have to tell you, I was so apprehensive about doing this. I did not want to do this. I was so opposed to it. God isn't going to do that. Why? That's weird. It's wacky. But my wife, she had faith. You get to see how our relationship kind of works now. She was like, no, I think God's in this. She had to give me a whole pep talk to kind of get me out there on the streets to kind of go and do this and encourage me. Sometimes that's how it works. It shouldn't always be that way. But sometimes it is with our, our wives. She's a great woman of faith, my wife Holly. And so she encouraged me. So we continued to pray. And I prayed. And I had just three kind of very simple, uh, I would say, faint impressions that there was a woman, she was out in front of Victoria Station um, in the street sort of area, had a picture, just, just exactly kind of, uh, just in the front bit, just before you get to Little Ben, if you know that. She would be wearing a red scarf and something about crying, I wasn't really sure, so I put crying question mark and I wrote these things down on a piece of paper and we walked out to Victoria Station. Within minutes we saw the woman who mapped this description. A woman with a red scarf outside Victoria Station. So I stopped, I went up to her and I said, Hi, I'm from a local church and I'm doing an alternative treasure hunt. She was freaked out by that. <laughs> She's like, you, you, you what? But it was strange enough to get her attention, actually. It was quite helpful. Um, so she kind of wanted to stop. What, what, what is that? And I sort of slowed down and I explained what we were doing, that we prayed and we'd asked for these clues, people to bless. She said, well, that could be any woman. They're so vague, those descriptions. That could mean any person. But I, and I said, well, you were the first person who met that description. Could we pray for you? So she stopped, she let us pray for her, just out on the street, uh, in front of other people there. And I prayed what felt like the most generic prayer I have prayed. So uninspired moment. And I kind of then drifted on to pray for her work, for Monday. God, give her strength for Monday. So she would face any trials or challenges, difficulties on Monday. She would feel like a new person in this workplace. I felt like it was a pretty generic prayer. I don't know why I prayed for her work, but I did. We'd stopped praying. We looked up at her. She just clearly moved. Didn't quite understand why myself. Um, so I started to ask her, what, what's going on? Are you okay? She, she said, something happened to me as you were praying. Um, I've had a terribly difficult thing at work on Monday. And this is, this is amazing. And I, I never thought this would happen to me. I just feel that God cares for me. He's seen me and he loves me. And in that moment, she burst into tears and she hugged us both, me and my wife. And I took out the piece of paper and said, you see, now it makes sense, crying, question mark. God is calling us out to do more and more of this sort of stuff. Supernatural walking with him. The key to it, though, is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. Jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Behold the glory of God. Behold Jesus and become like him. Or the prayer of St. Patrick, brilliantly brought to us by Craig this morning. To see Christ as everything. Seeing Jesus brings breakthrough to us. We begin to see who he is. We know who we are. We know who we serve. But Jesus just uses one word here, come. Just come. Nothing else, nothing more. It's a very simple word. I find it sometimes a little bit of an annoying word, if I'm honest. Just, just come. I would be like, 
Uh, there's a boat. How do you do this, Jesus? I was expecting some specific instructions. You know, what do I think about when I put my foot on the water? Do, do I just do it tentatively? Do I to jump in? You know, imagine I'm stepping on stepping stones really here. Or is it just water and is it going to move? And when the waves come, do I go up? Do I go down? What, what do I do? Is it like surfing? I've got all these questions, right? You may have questions as well. But then I think about how God works through the Bible. Think of Abraham. He goes not knowing. Right? What are you doing, God? This great you know, leader of, of faith in the Old Testament, this man, he sends him out and he's going to go leave everything behind. This nice luxury, comfortable lifestyle in a city. Uh, I think living kind of at these bricked walls of some make or kind to live in tents and on the move and not knowing where he's going. It's like, what? For me, it'd be like, Jesus, I want you to show me where and I want you to tell me how. I want the details before I take one single step. It's not always like that, but it is often like that. That is not how God wants it to be. It's just like, come, come in obedience. Just get out. I don't mind how you get out. If you fall out, it doesn't matter. Just, just come. Just come as you are. You might, are you unqualified? Yeah. Not many people have a degree in walking on the water. Just come. Just come. Follow me. I love the story of Acts chapter 8 of Philip. He's out there um, really seeking to follow God. Acts, if you don't know, is basically the, the sequel to these biographies that we're reading from today, uh, written by Luke, who is an investigative historian, like a, me a medical doctor, very reliable author. Uh, and in the book of Acts chapter 8, he describes Philip, this, this great uh, man of faith, really an ordinary guy, though. And um, God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to this road. Nothing more than that. Why that road? <laughs> Something special about that road. What do I do when I get to that road? I'd like to know, but Philip, he just obeys. He goes to that road. And then it's like, okay, you've got to that road. Now I'm going to send you over to this chariot. Like, for what? To do what? I don't know. Just, just obey. Just go to that chariot. Okay, I'm going to that chariot now. Ah, oh, now, oh gosh, I'm hearing an Ethiopian unit reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Oh, wow. Now I know what I'm meant to do. A prophecy, a prediction, 700 years before Jesus was even born about what he was going to do in his death and his resurrection. That's amazing. This is how we're meant to live. We're meant to live by faith. We're meant to live by faith. There's an adventure. God is calling each of us to, to get out of the boat. And it's fun and it's, it's exciting. See, faith is reasonable. I, I'm a lawyer by background, by the way. Faith is reasonable. It's evidential. There's truth. There's, we can argue for a reasonable faith, but it isn't completely rational. Faith is reasonable, but it's not completely rational. We need to get out of the boat and just trust Jesus. Here's the final point. God rescues. God rescues. The challenge is as we get distracted. Verse 30 comes, well-known verse for many Christians, but when he, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. Our senses get assaulted all the time by all sorts of fears and doubt. We're under attack, living in London especially. You're under attack, being assaulted by things that are going to come at you to get you to look away from Jesus, to get you to, to doubt Jesus, to take your gaze off him and be sucked into other things. It can be the incredible pressures of the busy lifestyle, just the to-do list that just goes on and on and on. You become more like Martha, busy at the chores, rather than like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You get sucked into that. 
or it's the worldly kind of cares of the world that, that kind of choke us up. We get so anxious about everything in this world, the things that we don't have, and then the things that we want that make us even more anxious about them. We get caught up with all of that anxiety. There's the storm of sin that's raging all around us, and often it comes into our own hearts. And we're tempted to look away and we begin to sink. We begin to find our meaning and our acceptance and our purpose and our identity in the things that we're looking at and we're drawn to rather than to Jesus. And the secret is just to turn our eyes back to him. I love that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Mm and his grace verse 31 is a glorious verse no matter how hard we all try to follow Jesus and to supernaturally walk with him we will stumble we will fail we will look away there'll be moments where we all sink but in those moments it's helpful to know I'd say it's essential that there's grace there's Jesus his hand there immediately it's there immediately in the text immediately immediately it's immediate the grace of God the provision as soon as you start to sink as soon as you turn away he's there and he'll pull you right back up and then he'll scold you right no I don't think so I really think we misread this kind of conversation that happens here it comes you have little faith he says why did you doubt we read that through like I don't know like a boarding school headmaster kind of logic that is not the father <laughs> he never's like that. It's like, this is a, an invitation to grow. Okay, Peter, this is what happened. Do you know what? Here's a clue. It's about faith. It's a little faith. It's a weak faith. I want you to think about that. Now, here's a question to help you think about that. Why did you doubt? What did you look at? You saw the wind. I am in control of the wind. Hello? The storm is still waging. We're walking. I'm walking. It's okay. It's trying to help you think. God's questions are always invitations to self-examination. The very first question that God asks in the Bible is, where are you, Adam? Now, God knows where Adam is. He knows where he is geographically. He knows where he is spiritually. He is asking the question for Adam to grow in his own revelation, his self-understanding, to kind of catch up with God. That is why God is asking the question in this moment. Are you learning? Are you listening? Are you thinking, oh, that didn't work out? Okay, there's grace in that. There's grace in that. God wants to have a dialogue with you. Let me, let me help you kind of to, to learn from that to, to not, so it doesn't have to happen again or to, or to do better the next time. Are we learning, listening and dialoguing with God about these things? There are many, many second chances in God. For those who fear, sometimes you think you, you've done, failed too much, sinned too much, messed up too much, been too comfortable the second chances, they just keep coming again and again and again. Peter, uh, he's a case in point. He struggles here, but he comes back up. He's the only guy to get out of the boat, by the way. That's another reason why this isn't scolding. He's the only one who does well. <laughs> there are second chances again and again. Peter will go on to be rebuked by Jesus. And then he'll argue with Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. No, you will. Uh, no, no, I'm not. I'll never do that. And he denies him three times, reinstated three times. This is the heart of God to keep bringing us back to him, drawing us back. The key to all of this is, is something very simple. It's called confession, which is just a prayer. And a, oh, a, <laughs> confession, clearly a very holy, powerful thing. <laughs> um, 
it's confession. I think it's the lost glorious art of many, many churches. For me, my life first, one of them is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess, if it's a choice, we, everybody needs to do it, confess, acknowledge, come before God honestly, with, admit what we've done wrong, where we've fallen away from him or, or not done something right, our sin, holy offense before God who made us. He is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow, we can be clean. Hallelujah, forgiven, beloved. Isn't that wonderful? And we start again as we turn our gaze from all this other stuff and we look to Jesus. God is the God who sees. He's the water-walking God of glory, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. If you need one final confirmation, just have a look at verse 32. When Jesus gets into the boat, the wind died down. <laughs> At that moment, the storm stopped. The moment that Jesus comes into your heart by faith, when you say, Jesus, you're amazing. I want to worship you. I want to bow down before you. I want to come on this adventure. Whether you do that for the first time or you do it again, because we all grow distant, we're leaky vessels, and we need to keep coming back to God, peace comes into your heart. A supernatural peace, a peace that cannot be explained by anything else in this world. That is frankly amazing. That will be a peace in the midst of the storm and you'll be so full of joy to serve him in the most difficult assignments that God gives you. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Moses walked through the Red Sea. It parted before him. And he went through these waters, waters of judgment that once covered the earth. Jesus is true and better because he doesn't walk through them. He simply walks upon them. He walks upon judgment. And Jesus, the God of glory, comes down from the infinite heights, not simply a mountain as he does in this passage, but from heaven in glory all the way down to earth. And he sees us in our storm of sin and he comes to rescue us out through the cross and the resurrection. He is the most amazing God. And you can enjoy the greatest adventure, putting your trust and following him. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you see us. Lord, I pray for anybody here who's felt unseen, unwanted, forgotten, insignificant. Lord, I pray they would know today that they are seen, seen in the difficulties that they're going through and that you are here today to help them, to help them by giving them give each one of us a greater vision of you in glory that will wipe out and drive out all of our fears help us to see the glory of your love the glory of your kindness the glory of your mercy the glory of your justice lord god and fill all of our hearts with peace that we would step out of the boat and walk supernaturally with you and do even greater things than you did when you walked this earth yes pray this in your holy name